0: His word invites you to look at the high priestly prayer of Christ in John chapter 17. Again, I see at least six components. I'm not sure if we'll do a message for each. We'll see how they unfold, but here we will focus on verse 12, mention verse 15 as well. This section here, John 17, is the high priestly prayer of Christ that he prays for his disciples. And we will find out in the text, this is certainly applicable to all who would follow Christ and therefore be his disciples, but nevertheless, this is Christ's high priestly prayer, the prayer that he prays to the Father, the prayer that is symbolized in the Old Testament high priest who went before the throne of God and first brought prayer And then brought sacrifice. Well, Christ is about to die on the cross and provide the sacrifice, the payment for sin, but it begins and proceeds with prayer. And here we get an insight into what this prayer is about. This first part of it here, after he prays about his, his own glory to be manifested in the first five verses, his glory to be manifested in the disciples themselves, his glory, meaning his, the beauty of his divine perfections, that is, his disciples are conformed to Christ, Manifest that glory in the world. Here we have a specific prayer for the saints, as we've already noted. One is for their unity, fundamentally unity with God. That unity, as we've talked about, comes only through the Son. It is through the Son that you will be united to God, and that union then does overflow into the union of one another, even in this temporal life. That is the basis of our gathering together as saints. It's not because we like the same kinds of clothes or foods or habits or doing things. In fact, the beauty is to see true diversity which is not external, but really just different thoughts and ideas and practices, but one unity, and that is Christ. That is what's first and foremost. Other things we can think about and debate about and and make good decisions and seek wisdom on, no doubt, but Christ is first and foremost. And it's for that unity that Christ prays. How could he bring together these disciples, as we mentioned, who are so diverse? I mean, uh, the example I gave last week was uh, Matthew, the the sellout, a tax collector, right? And then you had Simon the Zealot, who was the political activist, if you will. They would have been opponents. What brought them together? It is Christ. Christ alone. And Christ is the answer to to the question that our world asks, why can't we all just get along? Because you must be conformed to Christ. That's the answer. Anything that doesn't look like Christ needs to be chipped away. Well, he prays for that unity. Our focus, though, this, this morning, however, will be on verse... 12, which is, if you'll note here, it does talk about Christ guarding his people. And and hence the imagery of this, that those that are in Christ are guarded by God. And it is through the means of Christ's high priestly prayer in which he says in verse 12, I have guarded them. Christ, by the way, ever lives to make intercession for his people. Okay? He continues this high priestly prayer, which the symbolism was that one time. Well, Christ, as Hebrews 7.25 says, he continues on. He always lives. He always makes intercession on behalf of his people. This intercession we're looking at now is being guarded. Now, he does say that he kept them and then he says he guarded them, if you will. The keeping, as we mentioned in a previous sermon, has more to do with keeping their loyalty, keeping them faithful to God. The guarding, it is a different word, but it's, and it is a synonym to keeping, but it is a little different emphasis, And that is, the guarding is more the imagery of protecting, if you will, protecting from forces that would bring about your demise. Guard, if you think of a castle with a guard, the guard's going to protect the castle, right? The fortress. That's the imagery here. It is Jesus who is the mighty protector, the guardian of the saints, And it is his prayer, his continuous prayer, intercession for the believer that indeed the believers are guarded by God. And that's an important thing to note in our culture. We don't think about the idea that God is about the guard, the protector. There's a mythological understanding of many due to various reasons, perhaps superstition, perhaps some misunderstanding of the scriptures promoted by a number of groups, Roman Catholics, one, other mystics, cultist groups, who their focus is on some sort of angelic being, being your guard, and hence the idea of a guardian angel. I am here to announce to you that God is the guard. God is the guard. It is this prayer of Christ for his saints, the reason that we are guarded. He may send out and dispatch immaterial beings angelic beings, if you will, to accomplish his will and his purposes, but they are just ministers or they are servants of Almighty God. If you're going to be guarded, it isn't through the greatness of some angel, it is through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.14 about ministering ser- spirits who are sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. God uses means to accomplish his purposes, but any angelic involvement, which you would not be aware of, They're immaterial, after all, right? Uh, They're not material. So they are engaged, of of course, but it is for God's purposes, and they function in that way. Matthew uh, records in Matthew 18.10, this is where some are confused about it, say, it says, see that you don't despise these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In context, Matthew's point here is the little ones are believers, those that are children of God. God is guarding them, and yes, he does have ministering spirits, angelic beings who are um, warrior type beings that the scriptures talk about. But, but here, I always get the image, always see the face of my father, uh, image of um, my border collie who is always ready for action. Right? And you can imagine, Jesus Christ is on the cross. The scripture tells us he could have called a legion of these angels. Because why? They're always ready. They're ready to do what? Serve. Beloved, we should also be always ready to serve, but they are in their holy perfection, and that is the disposition of their heart and life, and the only reason we as servants of God aren't even more so wanting to do his will, it is the sin which besets us from time to time. MacArthur comments on this. Uh, succinctly, I'll just quote him here. This doesn't suggest that every believer has some sort of personal guardian angel. Rather, the pronoun is collective and refers to the fact that believers are served by angels in general. These angels are are pictured always watching the face of God so as to hear his command and to, to them to help a believer when needed. It is extremely serious to treat any fellow believer with contempt since God and the holy angels are concerned for their well-being. I think that's well said. Believers, ultimately, the, what I wanted to emphasize, you're, you're guarded by Christ. You're guarded by God. He may dispatch ministering servants to help accomplish to his will, but nevertheless, it is God's and his will. Let's look at our text then and focus on this idea of being guarded, protected through the prayers of Christ guarded by God. Jesus begins in verse 9 here where we'll pick it up and we'll read the context through 18. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we will listen to the very prayer of Christ be comforted and be encouraged by it. May we have a sharper conviction to obey your will and to enjoy the joy that is provided in Christ Jesus for those that are in communion with him. I pray this in the sanctifying name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now my focus here in if you'll notice here in verse 12 he says I've guarded them. I've guarded them. Jesus is referring to his idea here in the with those particular disciples. He was physically with them. Now he's going to physically leave, if you will but they still need to be guarded. This dynamic of guarding and protecting, it's going to change. It is through his intercessory prayer. It is through a triune God who will guard and protect the believer. The believer, by the way, must be guarded. Your faith must be protected. Protected so that you will not be lost, verse 12, as the son of perdition, that you will endure to the very end. There are many things to be guarded from, but I'm going to highlight just three for the sake of time. I've noted them on the back of your worship folder, I think, if I can find mine. In any case, I think it's something to the effect of, and I change these words from time to time, but often alliterate them just to help me remind myself of what they are and then I change them and then I forget them. Any case, denial. You need to be guarded from denying the faith. The second one is you have an adversary, the devil, and you need to be guarded from him. And the final is your own destruction or damnation. Believer, you need to be protected from those influences. You will find them here in our text, deduced certainly, I agree, but nevertheless, you'll find them here, and it's on those that I would like us to focus on this morning, those things that Christ is praying, protecting us from, guarding us from. If you notice, as I mentioned before, in verse 12, Jesus looks back on his ministry and he says, I kept them. I kept them in your name. That is, I kept them faithful to your name. Loyal, if you will. Now he says, he adds this phrase, I have guarded them. This expands this concept of loyalty to protection for the saint so that indeed you will not be overcome by these elements that are against you, that are warring against you your own flesh, the devil, and the consequences of giving in to those things, the very destruction of your soul. Jesus is praying. He is praying for his disciples to the very end. Now note here in our text, this is contrast to Judas who he sends away. He says, I lost none of them except Judas, because this was ordained by God. The scriptures needed to be fulfilled. How how were the scriptures fulfilled? Because God had already determined what would happen. He didn't make Judas become a betrayer. This was the condition of his heart. Might I say this is the condition, the natural state of every fallen man. They hate God. Then they might smile Why they do that. They might think in their mind that they don't, but they do. And it is demonstrated ultimately in the fact that you will not glorify God for who He is. That's wicked enough. We might think of wickedness in different terms and ways, but this is indeed the son of perdition, and it is evidenced in his betrayal, his hypocrisy, and how he sells out Christ. None of the disciples that he's praying for, and note in verse 9 and following, He's not praying for the world. He's not praying for Judas in that way. He's praying for his disciples. Why? So they wouldn't become Judas. So they wouldn't betray the faith. So they wouldn't be filled with the devil so that they wouldn't be destroyed. The only reason that you are faithful and don't deny the faith, the only reason the devil doesn't overcome you, and the only reason you're not destroyed is through the prayers of Jesus Christ. No wonder we receive communion with him and think about Him and respond in great praise and great glory for His work on behalf of His people. None will be lost because Christ is faithful. And even if you're not faithful, He is. He is faithful to the end. Believers are secure not because they said some sort of mantra, not because they went through some sort of ritual, not because they got baptized in water. It is because of Christ. This is, we call this doctrine the doctrine of eternal security. It's a dis- doctrine that describes a person's It doesn't describe a person's act or actions in time, but rather the continual intercession of Christ guarding his beloved. He made a promise. What was his promise? Do you remember? I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is not a liar. And he's going to do it. He'll accomplish it. And that's how you endure to the end. The raising up is the giving of the glorified body. But the believer, though, must be protected. It is Jesus' prayer that protects them. This first aspect, this idea of Judas apostatizing the faith, denying the faith, truly denying it, it comes from his own heart, as I mentioned, It is a depraved mind of a fallen man. The mind that all of us are born with in Adam and we begin with is fatally flawed. It is fallen. In some sense, we were in Adam when he fell and therefore received that same kind of mind. Christ comes and gives you a new mind, a regenerate mind. It's described as a stony heart that's now made alive. It was once impenetrable, and now it, it is alive. It is beating. Or you can think of it in, in the mind. You, you were darkened, and now you see the light. But it is still flawed in that there is sin that remains in this temporal life, in the life of the believer. And that's hard for some people to get a grasp on. They think, oh, well, you became a Christian, so why'd you do that wrong thing? Because you will still wrestle You'll wrestle with your own mind and thoughts. You will wrestle with the devil and the destructive forces thereof. Luther called this theology simul justus et peccator. In Latin, it simply means that believers, in one sense, are sinners and saints. Saints, as we mentioned, because of the payment of Christ for our sin, saints because of the perfection provided in Christ, but yet, in this temporal life, every one of you is going to die because the wages of sin is death. The good news is the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will raise you up. But in this life, you're going to wrestle with that part of unredeemed humanity that remains even in regeneration. You're not perfect in this life. Now, God will bring about many things in your life to chip away those things that don't look like Christ in your life, but yet you will always struggle with this to some degree. Paul uh, describes this doctrine, I'll read it for you, in Romans 7. As he thinks of himself here, the greatest saint that I could ever imagine, right? The apostle Paul. His 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 his, uh, statement about himself. Yeah, he will be a saint, right? A holy one, and yet he can also say, "Oh, wretched man that I am," right? Who will deliver me? And he praises. It is indeed Christ who will deliver him. He explains this in Romans seven seventeen. He says. It's no longer I who do it, but, but sin that dwells in me. That's where we get the idea of indwelling sin or remaining sin. That sin that remains, that part of unredeemed humanity that is part of your life that you will struggle with, that will die when you die, and you will be raised up in a glorified body. He says, for nothing. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he qualifies, that is in my flesh, see? That part of unredeemed humanity is still fallen. I, but he describes the struggle this way. I have a desire to do what is right. Why well, does he have a desire to do what is right? Because he's been given a new heart, new direction, new perspective. So there's something inside that wants to do right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. By the way, it'll... Uh, This is a different sermon, but it'll be carried out through the power of the Holy Spirit, not in your flesh. For I do the good I want, but I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. This is why you remember, if you'll confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you of your unrighteousness. The difference, really, the trajectory of a Christian is that he has this desire to want to confess. He has a desire to do what is right. And yes, they are sanctified as Christ will pray, and we'll talk about later, in the truth so that you continually grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Your sanctification, if you will, continues to grow, but it won't be fully accomplished until you're in a glorified state when Christ raises you up on the last day. In the interim right now here between the regeneration of the spirit and the glorification of the flesh, you must be protected. You must be guarded. Be aware of that. You must be guarded that indeed that you will not abandon the faith, that you will not follow the desires of the flesh and be destroyed by the devil. The depravity of your heart, these various sinful actions that we, we do begin in the mind. James talks about this in James 1, verse 14. He's talking about Temptation. A person is tempted, James would say, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He's talking about his own evil desire on the inside. That desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It begins in the mind, it acts out in the life. And you see the dilemma, don't you? We're in this battle with our own mind. We're wrestling with it. We, we, we want to do that which is right. We've given been given the mind of Christ, and yet there is a sin that remains that we must battle against. The hymnist wrote about the blessing Oh, God, that comes at that very time. He calls it a fount of blessing. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to, d- to thee. You get the imagery? That's where it comes from. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Why do people abandon the faith? There's much thought on that. Parents have great concern about their children who have been exposed to the truth, then go off into their career, the world, if you will, college. They're exposed to things perhaps that they didn't hear about or circumstances they don't know, and they abandon the faith. This is, this is a problem that many, quote-unquote, evangelicals talk about. Solutions have been given and books written, and some of which are, well, should have better discipline in the home, instruction, and guidance Prior to leaving the shelter of home, the church needs to be better in presenting these truths. I think all of those are good and should be there, but don't neglect the fundamental and foundational thing it's a heart issue. External actions won't bring about a change of heart. Now, drag them to church. I'm all for that. Require that. Yes, you should. Expose them to that, but also warn them. To examine their own heart to see if they're in the faith. Are there any true desires on the inside, not to please mom and dad, but is there love and affection for Christ? I submit to you that the reason these children walk away, or someone perhaps that publicly has been in the faith a long time and then turns away, we call this apostasy, right? I submit to you the reason they do is not because of lack of training and instruction and discipline and all of that. I'm all for all those things. But you know the real problem is they never had it to begin with. They were not walking in the faith to begin with. It may look like they're walking in the faith. They, they might have filled out the right forms and charts and, and underlined the right things in their Bible, but they never had it to begin with. Don't take my word for it. Take an inspired apostle who got this word from the Holy Spirit. John himself would write in his epistle, 219, to explain they went out from us 1 john 2:19 but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us and why do they go out that it might be plain that they are not of us and this is important to make that distinction and to tell them you're not a christian Come to Christ. Continue to preach the gospel to them. Don't comfort them in, oh, well, you said some little statement at one time and and you went through some sort of ritual. Maybe Christ will take you in the end. No, he's not. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that. I'll just say this as a side too with my uh, children as well, experience that I had. Listen, they grew up in a Christian home. All of them confessed Christ as Lord, but it needed to be demonstrated in their life and I continually challenged them on it then and continually challenged them on it now. Examine your own heart. Yeah, let them say the sinner's prayer a thousand times. I think that's good. Fine. Let let them know about Christ, but also ask them to examine their own heart. Do they come to awareness? Do you love Jesus Christ? Is he truly Lord? This abandonment of Christ, and in our text it notes the son of perdition, Judas himself, makes it evident that he never embraced them. You can do nice and noble things in life. You can be an excellent theological scholar. But in the end, Jesus, like he did with Judas, will say, it's time to leave. Depart from me. I never knew you. And that's the real question to ask your own heart. Not do you know Jesus, but does he know you? Those who don't remain leave because they're not given in our context because Jesus kept them, kept them loyal in the faith. It wasn't their own upbringing and doing, it is because of the work of Christ. And beyond that, he guarded them so that they indeed would not apostatize the faith. And I know I mentioned this before, but I like this passage. And I just want to bring it to your attention. You might want to turn there, Luke 22. Luke 22. Because it's in context with this um, contrast, uh, and I've mentioned this multiple times, but um, I do like repeating myself. Luke 22:31. He said, remember, Jesus sends Judas out. Jesus doesn't lose anyone except the Son of Perdition, right. But why does and why does Peter deny? And he's restored. Here's why. Luke twenty-two thirty-one 31 gives us the answer. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32. And this is what you need to underline. I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You know why your faith hasn't failed? Christ is praying for you. No wonder we sing all glory, laud, and honor, right? He prays for me. I gave my heart as a teenage boy to Christ, didn't grow up in a Christian home, wasn't even uh, helped, educated by great truth, went to a secular school, all of that against how in the world, looking back on it now as a child, did did I remain faithful in the Lord? Was it because I'm just a great guy? No, it's because Christ prayed for me. And when I did fail... I repented. That's the difference in a Christian, you understand. I'm not giving you a license to do evil because a Christian doesn't want to do evil. He struggles against it. But when he does he turns again. That's the imagery here in verse 32 of Luke 22. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How does Christ know that Peter's going to repent? Because he's keeping them. He's guarding him from his own denial of the faith. And if Christ didn't pray for him, he would have been like Judas. You may struggle. and It may feel like you are just sinking in the depth of the ocean. But like Peter, you pray the simplest thing that you can, Lord, help me. And he'll grab and pull you up and put you on solid ground. The fact that you cry out to Christ is evidence that you're alive. If you're dead, you would just sink to the bottom and be consumed by it. It is Christ's high priestly prayer that prays and guards your faith even this hour. The adversary is mentioned here in this Luke 22. We're going back now to our text in John 17 to talk about the second aspect, that is this evil one, the devil. He's our adversary, Satan. He demanded Peter... I suppose it might be, and I don't know this, but why Peter pointed out, particularly he is a disciple of Christ, we, we know what will happen in his life and his influence in proclaiming the gospel. But nevertheless, why is, he ha- why is Satan demanding Peter? I think this adversary recognizes Peter's failures and says, look, he's broken your law. He deserves destruction. Let me have him. He's failed the righteous requirements of the law. Satan is an accuser of the brethren, and this is what he does. The book of Revelation chapter 12 talks about that. In our text, and notice... In John 17, if you're back there, drop down to verse 15 because this ties into 12 what Jesus is guarding them about. He doesn't take them out of the world, verse 15, that is this culture, the society where we live, but, but what is he praying? Ultimately, what is he guarding them from? Number two, the devil. I pray that you keep them from the evil one. The evil one is the devil and those under his influence, including demons, false teachers, apostates, atheists, and beloved, even agnostics. Somebody asked, what's the difference between an atheist and agnostic? And they replied, I don't know and I don't care, but I digressed. The word devil is a translated, transliterated word in Greek. It, it means slanderer or false accuser. A slanderer takes some aspects that are true and twists them to mean something else. And if you're not sure, just watch cable news. You'll find it out real quick. It's a twisting It's a false accusation in the end because they don't look at context. They don't look at uh, the way things are intended. They try to make them appear differently. Now, I have a few scriptures I'll read for you, but for the sake of time, you can go ahead and jump to 1 Timothy 4 because some of these others you'll know. 1 Timothy 4, and then I'll read a couple other texts just in your hearing so you don't have to run all over the place. The devil is a liar. He's a deceiver. You need to know that. The accuser of the brethren is not making this accusation on fact. He's making it up. He is a liar. He is twisting, slandering. Jesus confronted people who rejected him leaders religious leaders who rejected Jesus Christ and his rebuttal to them in John 8:44 if you remember he says you are of your father the devil And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. By the way, contrasted that to Christ who is what? Truth incarnate. The devil. No truth in him. So when he speaks, he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and a father of lies. You want to know where lies come from? Right there from the devil, the liar himself. The, another word is used for the devil, it's Satan. And there's a number of words, but these are uh, the more common. The devil, slander. Satan is really the idea of an adversary. An adversary. Peter, who had great experience with all of this, who Satan desired to sift him as wheat, right? Writes in his epistle, and I'll read it for you in your hearing, 1 Peter 5, 8. His charge, applicable to you today, is to be sober, to be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, adversary, the devil, the enemy, if you will, Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is the circumstance in which exists even now. I mean if there was some wild animal outside that door, I think you would be a little alert about it, wouldn't you? You would be mindful, watchful, careful. Oh beloved. Recognize there isn't a moment of the day that doesn't go by that your adversary would love to take you down. And so the charge is to live watchful, a sober life. And to do this, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. It is Christ who will give you the strength to indeed resist the devil. Let's look at verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4 because you may think, well, how does this devil manifest himself? It's not some sort of horror show, a physical thing that's going to Tear you limb to limb, it's going to affect your mind. It's going to come from false teaching. Amazing to me when I read the New Testament and hear all of the warnings about false teachers. This is early on when it just started. They didn't have time for a number of these cults that we know about today to exist. But here's a great warning because this is this is the trajectory of the liar. It is in teaching. 1 Timothy 4. Now the spirit especially says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. That is, they will apostatize, right? They're going to go away. So, what's going to be that catalyst for it? They will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. And through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, and they gives them an example. This isn't all of it, this is just an example of it. Oh, really? What kind of false teaching? What kind of lies are coming out that are called demonic and inspired by the devil, if you will? Here is an example. Well, they're going to forbid in marriage. Well, God ordained marriage from the very beginning. Right? They're going to forbid marriage. Or, might I even say, don't promote it. Okay? Tell people, oh, you shouldn't do that. Now, I understand some folks will not be married, and Paul talked about that. They have a gift. But that's the exception to the rule. This is the rule. And here, in their case, there were those who forbade marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Make your own decision about food, but let no one judge you in food or drink. Right. I mean, you may want to eat certain things that are good for you, healthy for you. Maybe you react differently, particularly to all the plethora of things that we have out there now. Use wisdom in it, but it, but it isn't. Life is not about food and drinking. Prior to the uh, to the to the fall, they ate vegetables. But after, and the charge in the Noahic covenant was eat everything. Certain restrictions came under the Mosaic law to only a group of people, and all of those have been done away with in Christ under the new covenant. Eating and drinking will not commend you to God. That's a false teaching. There's some truth, and then it's twisted. Some is outright lie. And he gives the explanation here, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. John will say in his second epistle that many deceivers have gone out into the world Those who do not confess, and in his analogy, his uh, specific issue was that Christ didn't come in the flesh. Anyway, he says, that person that would deny the humanity of Christ is a deceiver and the antichrist. That is, against Christ. Watch for yourself so that you don't lose Everyone who goes ahead and doesn't abide in the teachings of Christ doesn't have God. The devil is your adversary, and he's a pretty tough one. But you have an advocate in Jesus Christ. That's the answer an advocate in a judicial sense that he pleads on our behalf. So Satan then imagine before the throne of God accuses you of all these things that you're rightly just to be accused of, but yet our advocate as Christ is, I paid for that one. I paid for that one. I paid for all of them. And therefore, righteous in Christ, just and Christ the justifier. Believe this, the devil is a great foe. Martin Luther wrote a hymn that we're familiar with A mighty fortress is our God. He, he's the fortress. Christ is guarding and protecting this bulwark that never fails. We don't confide, it says, in our own strength, otherwise, our striving would be what? Losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name, from age to age the same, and he will win the battle. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. What's that word? Christ. That's it. Because why? The devil is a liar. Christ is the truth. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to him abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours and through him who, who with us sideth. Let goods and kin-